when our transplants fail, we go through a depression. I grieved. I grieved big time for my first transplant. I felt like I failed her. I felt like I failed myself. What exactly underlies depression that comes up in patients with kidney disease? Welcome to the eighth episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, but never dilute. Join a group of nephrons as we try to push the boundaries of kidney medicine. Today, we'll be discussing mental health and kidney disease. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. I'm Sam Kent, a transplant nephrologist at Johns Hopkins. And I'm Matt Sparks, a nephrologist at Duke University. Today, we have two excellent guests, Dr. Parker Gregg and Nicole Jefferson. Hi, I'm Nicole Jefferson. I live in Dallas, Texas. I am a two-time transplant recipient, and I became interested in mental health while dealing with this journey for 20 years and also having to go through it a second time. I'm Parker Gregg. I'm a nephrologist and a clinical researcher in Houston, Texas at Baylor College of Medicine and the VA Center for Innovations in Quality, Effectiveness, and Safety. My research interests include the intersection of depression and other mental health concerns with chronic kidney disease. Mental health is something of tremendous concern to our patients with kidney diseases, and we have a lot left to learn about how to effectively help patients in this area. So mine is a, a sort of classic story of academic medicine in terms of finding the right mentorship. So I've been lucky enough to have incredible mentorship in Susan Hedayati and contribute to some of her important work in this area. And through working with her, I learned a lot about mental health in patients with kidney disease. And the more I learned, the more passionate I became. So this is an area that deeply affects our patients, and it's a great privilege to get to work to improve clinical care for these concerns. Nicole, as a patient who've now had a kidney transplant twice, and you mentioned mental health affected you, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about that journey? Sure. So like a lot of people, a lot of patients in my community, I went straight from the ER to dialysis. So a lot of times people don't realize how traumatic that is for a patient. I have my primary care come in to visit me and immediately put me on depression pills without even telling me. I was so distraught. I was just taking medication until I stopped and said, wait, what is this? And she informed me that she was putting me on a depression medicine because she felt I would be depressed because of the way it transpired. Yeah, I was depressed, but all someone needed to do was just talk to me about it before medicating me. Through the journey the first time, I didn't know a lot of people on dialysis. I didn't know anyone other than my great uncle who was on dialysis years before. So I had to navigate this myself. So there were times where I would leave dialysis upset, but there was no one I could speak to. No one understood how I felt. My mom, my grandfather, I could talk to them because they would pick me up from dialysis, but they didn't understand the feelings that I had and also how it felt going from young person. I was 31, just starting in my career to someone who was now on dialysis and my complete my life completely changed. So I tried to find ways to get assistance and get help. And it just took a lot of talking about it. Thank you for sharing that, Nicole. Parker, I'd like to ask you, you know, I think since your research does focus on this immensely, what is the burden of mental health problems in patients with kidney disease? And how does it really compare to the general population? Because we understand that it's one of those, one of those underappreciated 
aspects of chronic kidney disease. Absolutely. Depression is by far the most studied mental health problem among patients with kidney disease. It is present in about 20 to 25% of patients with kidney disease, although the estimates of that prevalence vary a lot between different studies, depending on how depression was identified and on which patients were recruited for the studies. This estimate of 20 to 25% is much higher than estimates in the general population, which is, according to one recent paper, around 10% for a 12-month prevalence. Anxiety is not as thoroughly studied in patients with kidney disease, and studies have reported a really wide variation in its prevalence, but it ranges anywhere from around 30% to even as high as more than 50% of, of patients with kidney disease. And by comparison, anxiety disorders are present in about 18% of the general population. So again, thought to be much higher in the kidney disease population, but but not with as clear of a picture of exactly how common these disorders are in our patients. And among other types of mental health concerns, we really have very limited data. So kidney disease is more common among patients with bipolar disorder than without, which may be in part driven by kidney toxic effects of lithium. There are not really good estimates of the prevalence of this or other mental health problems such as substance use disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, psychotic disorders, eating disorders. I mean, these other these other conditions we know much less about. Parker, thanks for sharing that. I wanted to ask a follow-up question about some of that data that you shared. Could you tell us a little bit about how some of this information is collected? Is it from patient surveys or other sources? I think we know that in general, reporting of mental health challenges is low in all populations. The different studies have wildly different methods for identifying, particularly depression, where we have just a lot of studies to look at. There are several validated, accepted patient-reported surveys out there that you can use to screen for depression. Some of them are publicly available. Some of them you have to pay for. Most of them ask about specific symptoms. So the diagnosis of depression depends on identifying this constellation of symptoms. And these various patient surveys will ask questions about fatigue, sleep disturbances, depressed mood, lack of interest, these symptoms that make up the constellation of depression. And one thing that's very important to recognize is in patients with kidney disease, many of the symptoms of depression overlap with the symptoms of uremia and other kind of components of kidney disease. So figuring out who actually has depression and who has anemia or obstructive sleep apnea or a thyroid problem or many other things that can lead to these overlapping symptoms or dialysis inadequacy, for example, it can be quite a challenge. So as clinicians, it's very important that we pay attention to specifically whether the patient is reporting depressed mood and or the loss of interest in their normal activities to try to distinguish between patients with major depression and patients who might have some other cause of their symptom burden. Nicole, you had mentioned that you started dialysis at age 31 years old. When you reflect back on this, what are some advice you have for the nephrologist? How could they have done a better job? And what are some ways that we could improve taking care of patients with mental illness? I think the first thing we should do is talk to the patients. One of the things that I noticed, I was in center first because of how I went in. And they have someone there who's supposed to talk to you, a social worker, but the turnover rate is so high in those settings that once you get to know someone, they're gone. 
they're gone. You've lost that information. You don't have the next contact. When I went to PD, which was better for me, peritoneal dialysis, I really didn't have any contact with anyone who could speak with me and help me. It wasn't until I got with the community, the kidney community, that I was able to meet others and share my experiences. And then I decided to get a therapist, a real counselor, a therapist, someone who could discuss this with me. However, he didn't know anything about kidney disease. The only thing he knew is that one of his church members had been on dialysis for 40 years. So what I did like is that he did take the initiative to ask her about dialysis, also to ask me questions, to research information that made it easier for him to help me. But one of the things that I do suggest for nephrologists is that you make a suggestion for patients to find someone who they can speak to, not only the peer mentorships that our kidney patient organizations have, but also just reaching out to a counselor on their own to someone they can speak to about their issue. Nicole, could you tell us a little bit about the transition from peritoneal dialysis to a transplant and then to a second transplant and in particular with the lens of your mental health and how you were able to handle that? Wow, that's a lot. And that may be the reason that I had these issues because I went from in-center to peritoneal and then they spring on me all these things that I gained too much weight to be listed for a transplant. So I had to go back on in-center. Then my fistula didn't work. Then all of these issues that kept telling me, no, something's wrong. And that caused a downward spiral. When I was finally able to get transplanted, um, the problem I had, the thing that no one discussed with me is it's not a cure and I'm going to have other problems. So I went into this thinking everything was going to be okay and I was worse off actually with the transplant than I was on dialysis. After that hurdle of about the first five years and things started to simmer down and I became okay, three years after that, I was eight years into this transplant and it started failing again. So the mental aspect of that was, at least at this time, I did have my counselor set in place. So he was able to help navigate. I'd also met so many people in the kidney community who had become good friends of mine that I was able to navigate and get this information. I was able to find out ways to have a transplant before I went back on dialysis because that was my main concern. And I knew my mental health would take a nosedive if I had to go back on dialysis. So I had all of these things that I had to navigate through and also going and being listed on several different transplant lists and going around the country trying to be listed and having each location tell me something a little bit different. When I thought I was over a hurdle, one transplant center, no, we can't list you. Your EGFR isn't low enough. No, we can't list you because you need this done at this center instead of, you know, all the information from another. So just going around and trying to be listed was a whole nother aspect. Another aspect, the fact that I started, that the transplant actually started failing. And that's another thing that I think nephrologists don't understand. When our transplants fail, we go through a depression. I grieved. I grieved big time for my first transplant. I felt like I failed her. I felt like I failed myself. I felt like I failed everyone who helped 
get this transplant. And everyone who I felt believed in me, I felt I was letting them down. I felt like I was letting the family down of the transplant I received. So there was a lot of emotional guilt, a lot of emotional feelings just during that. And I think that's something that's not recognized and acknowledged. Thank you for sharing it's a small piece of that in this short period of time. And just before we move on, I just wanted to ask one final question related to the transplant. What were your thoughts around living donation when your transplant team at some point, I'm sure, had asked you, do you have living donors? How did you feel about that? And how did that go for you? I was all for living donors. I actually had one of my daughter's friends go get tested and she was on the SWAP program so I could do that. My daughter was interested. I did because they were young. I did want them to kind of hold out a little bit longer. And I told them I would be willing to take a deceased donor as long as I didn't have to go back on dialysis, but just to hold their kidneys, which is what I told them, hold your kidneys in case I need it years or later after this one. But I do promote living donors. I think they're great. But, I, you know, something extra with that, I don't think that there's enough research into necessarily the living donors and what they can have or what may come with them as well. So we're starting to realize that there is a big problem of addressing mental health and CKD. And Parker, you're kind of leading these efforts. What could you share from evidence are the interventions that we could use to help patients who are probably have underdiagnosed depression or anxiety? Is there any evidence out there that you could share with us? This is such an important question. And there have really not been many adequately powered clinical trials for the treatment of depression in patients with kidney disease. The two major ones are the CAST trial in patients with non-dialysis chronic kidney disease and the ASCEND trial in patients with kidney failure on hemodialysis. Briefly, the CAST study was the chronic kidney disease antidepressant sertraline trial, which was a double-blind randomized trial comparing sertraline to placebo for the treatment of depression in patients with non-dialysis chronic kidney disease stages 3, 4, or 5. This particular study evaluated the change in depressive symptoms from baseline to 12 weeks measured by a self-report survey. And basically, depressive symptoms improved from baseline by about four points in both the placebo and the sertraline groups with no difference between the group, but nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea were more common in the sertraline group. So that's the largest trial we currently have in patients with non-dialysis CKD. Among patients with kidney failure on hemodialysis, we have the ASCEND trial, which stands for a trial of sertraline versus cognitive behavioral therapy for end-stage renal disease patients with depression. So this particular trial was enrolled patients with kidney failure on chronic hemodialysis. It was a randomized trial that compared sertraline to cognitive behavioral therapy, which was delivered in the dialysis unit. And depressive symptoms decreased from baseline in both of these two groups by about four to five points, pretty similar to the change that we saw from baseline in both the sertraline and placebo groups in CAST. But the difference at 12 weeks between the two groups was statistically significant at 1.8 points, with the sertraline group having slightly lower depressive symptom scores than the cognitive behavioral therapy group. But in the case of this study, I would say the major limitation of it was the lack of an untreated control arm to see if either of these treatments performed better than no treatment would have. Uh, so 
there are some other studies out there of other alternative interventions, including some more detail about cognitive behavioral therapy and things like physical activity. A lot of these other studies are smaller and they may not be like fully conclusive, but they are promising. And so I would say the studies about cognitive behavioral therapy, it's likely effective for depressive symptoms. And there's not a lot of consensus between different studies about exactly how this should be delivered. Uh, so some studies used interventions of just a few sessions and other studies would do something very intensive, like three times a week for six weeks. And some other small studies might have tested just individual components of cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. But overall, I would say that the evidence there is pretty promising and there's a low risk of harm from it. And so I think given access to care and willingness and desire to participate in that kind of treatment, that it's a very good option to see if people can derive some benefit from it. As far as physical activity goes, there are a few small trials of different kinds of physical activity, aerobic, strength training, various different interventions there that also showed benefit to a control arm. And again, it's low risk. It has so many other benefits for people that those two things are very worth recommending. For people who are more interested in a medication therapy, I would say it's worth a time-limited trial of sertraline, um, but generally speaking, my bottom line is if you're going to be starting a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor for a patient with kidney disease, it's really important to start at a low dose, to gradually up-titrate that dose, and to just very carefully monitor the patient for both effectiveness and for adverse effects. And if the patient's not deriving benefit, or if they're having side effects from the medicine, then consider deprescribing that medication. Are there any side effects that we should be looking for more in patients with impaired kidney function or on dialysis? That's a great question. So there are some pretty important safety concerns when it comes to, to these medications. I would say the ones that we have the most information about in kidney patients are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are generally considered first line. Clinical trials are not really powered to look at, at serious adverse effects, although in CAST, they did show that sertraline was associated with more gastrointestinal side effects than placebo. And in Ascend, there were also more, more side effects from sertraline compared to the cognitive behavioral therapy group, about twice as many. But there are also some larger and quite well-designed observational studies that suggest that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors may be associated with things like hip fracture, gastrointestinal bleeding, and even cardiovascular events related to QT prolongation. So there are some pretty important safety concerns to be aware of when prescribing. You mentioned some non-pharmacological approaches to treating anxiety and depression, and Nicole specifically mentioned a therapist. How hard is it to find a therapist? Well, it depends on the way in which a patient is receiving insurance, and I know that's a, a big question. A lot of people on dialysis or with transplants are receiving Medicare, and I'm not sure how that works as far as a therapist. However, I have private insurance. And so what I did was I called my insurance company to get suggestions. And I made suggestions based on the type of person I would want to speak with or someone who I believed would understand me better, just as a Black woman living in America. So that's one of the th things I suggest is make sure that you call whoever your insurance provider is and find out what's covered. And then 
go and ask for suggestions based on what you think would be best for you. Another thing is that's where the nephrologist comes in, right? To be able to suggest these people who may be able to speak to you based on your history. Nicole, you mentioned a few times the importance of your kidney community. How did you find those people and how did you build that? And can you tell us a little bit about how patients looking for that community might be able to find it? I uh, became an advocate and I became an advocate with a major patient organization. And once I became an advocate, I just started speaking. I would go on Capitol Hill and do speeches. I would speak to congressmen in my local area. And then that just bounced into other things and other organizations. And of course, when I'm in so many organizations, I'm going to find friends because there are other people like me, people who are going through the things that I'm going through. Originally, I thought, surely this cannot be happening to anyone but me. And once I got out there and started meeting people with the same problems I had, I realized not only was I not alone, I also didn't have the worst case study out there either, which was good in some ways, bad in in another. So that's what I say. I just reach out to see what I can do to participate, to volunteer. And that's how I became friends with so many people in the kidney world. Can you tell us what organization that you connected with? I started with the National Kidney Foundation, and that was the first one I went to. I became president of Home Dialyzers United. I'm still currently president. So with that, I go out and I'm able to meet people and speak. I'm on the Texas Governor's Task Force for Chronic Kidney Disease. I have also been involved in studies as a patient participant, someone to give advice on a couple of studies with NIH, NIDDK, also with other patients. So that's how I'm meeting people, just with different organizations, the ASN. Of course, I was on the patient family partnership with ASN, so I so I met people that way as well. You became an advocate, and obviously you're involved in so many different things, and someone out there listening wants to become an advocate. How do they do that? I would suggest they reach out to the National Kidney Foundation in their own area, as well as national in New York, as well as Home Dialyzers United. We're always looking for new people to help us advocate for home dialysis. One of the things that you want to do is make sure you find out what you're passionate about in the kidney world, what you see as an issue, and try to find an organization for that. There's also the American Association of Kidney Patients, and that's another large one in which you can meet plenty of people and obtain a lot of information as well. So those are the three that I would suggest reaching out to first and foremost and just getting in the loop. Parker, what do you think is next or the future of treating and improving the care for patients with kidney disease and mental health challenges? There are a lot of different directions that things could go with. There's a really cool ongoing trial that I'm really excited about called Concord. It's the combination of novel therapies for CKD comorbid depression. It's the Concord study. It's got a really cool design. So it's looking at a couple of different novel treatment strategies for depression that involve at first treatment with either bupropion, one of the medications for depression, or with behavioral activation therapy, which is an alternative to cognitive behavioral therapy, a form of psychotherapy. And if the patient 
doesn't have their depression remit with that intervention, then they can escalate to treatment with both. And so it's more of a real world strategy to think about how we actually treat people. If they're not getting better, you, you know, you might add something or escalate what you're doing for them to try to make sure that they're, that they're doing well. And so that trial is exciting because of the treatment strategy angle to look at escalation to combination, but it's also exciting because both behavioral activation therapy and bupropion have not been looked at in patients with kidney disease. And so I think looking at a non-selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor medication intervention is going to be really important since we just have such limited data in our patient population and looking at alternative ways of addressing psychotherapy and non-pharmacological interventions, if you will. So that one, I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. And I think one question that really remains to be answered uh, that's a really important one is what exactly underlies depression that comes up in patients with kidney disease? Because I think this extremely high proportion of it uh, in patients with a lot of different kinds of chronic illnesses, heart failure, I mean, you know, cardiovascular disease, asthma, a lot of other chronic diseases have very high prevalence of comorbid depression. And so trying to sort out if there's some other underlying cause that could be addressed in a different way is another area that's very, very interesting. Great. Uh, well, thank you to both of you. I think we have come to the end of the Nephron segment. And something that we'd like to ask our guests before we part ways is tell us about something outside of your work that brings you joy. I mean, I hate to say it because we are talking about kidneys, but believe it or not, I am a uh, professional. I do a lot of kidney work, but I do have a nine to five dish that is intense and stressful. So the way that I relax or things that bring me joy is being able to have discussions about kidney disease. One of the things that's really been interested, interesting to me lately is my mother has a group of friends who she's been friends with for 65 years. And two of them have come to me privately and told me they have kidney disease. None of them know about each other. Having this, my mother doesn't even know. So I do pride myself on being a, someone who people can come to when they have kidney disease issues. I really enjoy going to state parks and national parks with my spouse and my toddler. And I'm also trying and mostly failing at photography and gardening. <laughs> what was the last national park you visited and what is the next one on the list? I went to Big Bend a few months ago, which was spectacular for anyone who hasn't been. It's marvelous. And we haven't really planned our next one, but there are so many on the list. I think that, you know, the, yeah, it's, it's a grab bag. We could go anywhere. <laughs> the issue is more of getting the time off than, than choosing where to go. <laughs> Thank you again to both of you for taking the time to chat with us and share your expertise and experiences. And we hope that the rest of the community can listen to this and gain something. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, and never dilute.